interesting story that's here. And I, I told my, my kids last night that this is not something that is generally taught in children's Sunday school. Uh, it is a striking story about the love of God, and it is a shocking story about the love of God. And so I hope this morning that you are truly shocked with his love in such a way as it melts your heart to come near to him. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to gather and worship and sing your praise and give and minister to one another and pray for one another, understanding that you hear us through the blood of your Son. And so we come before you this morning, opening your word with the belief that your word has power in it to transform our lives as we trust in you. And so God, please do what only you can do during this time and touch our hearts. And even as we sang a little while ago, understanding that our hearts are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Lord, you see all of that. You see where every person in this room is in relationship to you. You see hearts that are prone to wander. You also see hearts that are truly wandering. And Lord, your love is enough to pursue us and chase us down in our sin and bring us to your son, Jesus Christ. And so Lord, would you please do that in our midst this morning? Have our hearts, hearts that will wander and run. Have us and draw us close to you. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, we finished a series on love, biblical love, the one indispensable characteristic of the Christian life. And while we were there, I hope you were challenged with what you saw as we went through 1 Corinthians 13, that the love that we're called to is an incredible commitment of sacrifice that seeks the good of other people, not just ourselves. We are prone, are we not, to only seek to satisfy ourselves. We call that selfishness. But God's love calls us to sacrifice for the good and the joy of other people. That's what he has done for us. That's what Jesus came to do for us. And we begin to model that as God's people. We love like him. So that is the foundation of our calling to love. And I do not know if there is a more shocking place in Scripture where we see the love of God on display than where we are today. Hosea is the first book of what we call the Minor Prophets. There are 12 of those books, and I will confess to you out of the entire Bible, it's the Minor Prophets that I think I know the least. And so this is as much a help to me as I hope it will be for you that we will understand the differences between these books because often when I read them, I'm thinking to myself, it's all about Israel's sin, God's judgment, and there will come a day when everything is renewed and restored. They all seem to repeat that kind of theme. They really do. But there are differences between them, the times that they are spoken and the way that God communicates his judgment, but also his love to his people. And so Hosea is the one, I believe, it's a great place for us to start as we look at the minor prophets because of the way that God describes his love to his people. And so I want to start just with uh, the question or trying to answer the question, what does the setting of Hosea have to do with us today? And I will say that it is that the sin of Israel during that time is all too familiar to us today. 
that we are not so different than the people were way back then. Yes, it looked way different where they lived and even how they lived, but the desires of their heart were not so different than ours. And so the sin of Israel is all too familiar. And we're going to get to God's love in the second half of the sermon. But for God's love to seem as attractive and wonderful as it really is, we first need to be confronted with bad news, the hard news, the difficult news of the condition of our hearts but also the condition of our cultures, which is a collection of a lot of hearts in one particular place. That's what a culture is. And so we need to be confronted with where we are today, and I will say that it is not that different than where Israel was all that time ago. So Hosea was a prophet in Israel in the second half of the 8th century B.C., so sometime around 750 to 700 B.C., And so it was centuries before Christ, but it was also centuries after God saved these people out of Egypt. And so it's about halfway in between both of those time frames, between the Exodus and between the coming of Christ. And the nation had been in the land for quite some time at this point. And over this time, Israel had a checkered history. And God had a marriage relationship, in a sense, with these people. He had established that with these people when he led them out of Egypt. He made a covenant with them that is like a marriage, which is what our marriages in many ways are based upon. So he made a covenant with them, even though there was nothing very extraordinary about these people on their own. They were a very small people. They weren't strong. God simply chose to set his love upon this particular group of people and raise them up to a position that was far above anything that they had ever deserved on their own. But where did they find themselves? They found themselves in a place where their hearts, as we sung, were wandering from God. They were a people who saw their hearts were prone to wander, and they did wander. But yet, here is the Lord. He is a faithful husband. That's what he was. And yet, here were his people. They were an adulterous wife. False gods were intermixed with their culture. And those false gods, which were demons behind those gods, drew the hearts of the people after them. They represented promises and prosperity that excited the lusts of the nation of Israel, causing them to run after them instead of the Lord. And in those days, one of the primary demons that drew the hearts of the people after himself was a demon god named Baal. How many of you ever heard of the god named Baal? could be called Baal, the way that it is spelled. But Baal... And so Baal worship was prominent in the land. Baal promised material comfort. He promised favorable weather. And don't we all want that? He promised food production. They needed to be able to eat and were always worried about where their next meal would come from. Baal promised to take care of that. And he also promised fertility. They would have children and be able to continue on their lineage. What is it that Baal wanted in return for all of these things that he would offer the people? Baal desired indiscriminate 
and perverse sexual activity to be done in his name. And so the people erected shrines up on the hillsides throughout the land, places where they could go and perform these acts for Baal so that he would bless them in return. Prostitution, bestiality, incest among them. The people would give themselves over to drunkenness and pray the Baals to bless them with provisions as they offered up their bodies in sexual deviance. I want you to think about the lure that this has. Think about the attraction that this kind of God is offering these people. He's promising blessing. If you'll simply give in to one of the strongest impulses of human nature, Satan and his hordes, they know our nature all too well. Human beings already burn with lust and a desire for drunken pleasure. And so the demons make promises to them if they'll just do what they want to do anyway. And they'll know that when they offer these things to the people, that they'll have them caught, trapped in their net. And as I say all of this, Is it not apparent to you that the demon god Baal is alive and well today in our own land? Human nature has not changed. I know we'd like to think that we have progressed far beyond what these ancient people were, but human nature has not changed since then. Human beings still burn with lust for drunken pleasure, a desire for material blessing. We may not build the same kind of high places for cult prostitution as was the case there in ancient Israel, but look around right now, will you? And you'll see that our society currently revolves around material prosperity, around unhindered sexual satisfaction and drunken pleasure of all varieties. It's as if our culture is Baal worship all rolled up into the theme of continual decadence. That's what's all around us. And it gets to the point, does it not, where you don't even hardly notice it anymore. It becomes so normal that we don't pay attention. And sadly, it is all packaged to us and Presented to us, hidden in the word freedom. So we might wonder how the Israelites we read of in the Old Testament were so easily duped to make the trek to the Baal shrines. But if our eyes are open, we'll see that the people still have their shrines, but no longer have to walk the long walk to the high places to get to them. It is ingrained in everyday life and even sanctioned by our leaders all around us. How do you think that we got to a place where sexual sin of all kinds, it's not just clamored for by the culture, it's not just the screams of the people 
wanting these things, which is bad enough. But laws are passed in the halls of Congress to tell people that it's perfectly fine to do these things with your freedom. How did it get to the place where child sacrifice isn't hidden up in the hills? People don't have to run off to a secluded location in the presence of Molech or Baal. But it can all be done right there in your neighborhood clinic and called health care. All of this is done under the guise of freedom. Because what is it that the people want? They really want sexual freedom. Let me be free to do whatever I want with myself. Not just up there in the hills, but wherever they want to do it. Because evil is the new good. This Baal, we need to understand, is a crafty demon who is just giving the people what they already want, their sin, without the label of it being called sin, giving them what they believe is freedom. But he gladly enslaves them to himself in a prison of their own lust. They think that they are free, but they are truly trapped. Our culture is filled with the worship of false gods. And it has gotten harder to see that, has it not? Because it has gotten so normal around us. We have become very hard to shock nowadays. But it's because Baal worship is all around us. And so what does the sin in Hosea's day? All this time, this so, so long ago, what does this have to do with us? We who are so advanced... I hope that you can see that it has everything to do with us. And just as we are so much more advanced in this same sin, really, we're advanced people, are we not? But we're advanced in this sin far beyond where these people were so long ago. And if you're here this morning and you find yourself giving in to what God would call spiritual adultery, spiritual prostitution, participating in the lustful acts of our culture and believing that it is somehow a good because of your freedom. Know that you are only feeding your sin and imprisoning yourself as a partaker of modern Baal worship and the end is destruction. But here in this book that we call Hosea, he offers hope. There was hope for ancient Israel. And brothers and sisters, there is hope for us today. And yes, their sin is all too familiar. But with the rest of the time that we have together this morning, I want you to see this. That the love that God expressed to them in their sin is the same love that he has for you in yours. You are not too far gone and you are not beyond the reach of God's unfailing love and his love should shock us it should overwhelm us and draw our hearts to him whether you come here today already a child of God or somebody that is just curious about what it means to be a real child of God my hope is that here in this story of Hosea that he will show you who the Lord is and make you delight 
to love the one who has loved you so much first. So what is it that is so shocking about this story? In the opening words of chapter 1, God tells Hosea to go and marry a woman who will become a prostitute. He says, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And so the people have whored themselves out to Baal. He says that Hosea's wife will do the same with her lovers. And so Hosea's marriage is intended to be a picture of God's love for his people. How he loves his wife, Israel, but yet they are often running off in prostitution after other gods. But he says, you're going to marry a woman that will do the very same thing to you, and you will be an illustration of me and how I love my people. I would say that this is a bit shocking. Hosea, go and marry this woman whom you're going to love, you're going to delight in, but understand that somewhere along the way, She's going to leave you. She's going to break your heart. She's going to chase after other men who she thinks are better than you. That's what she's going to do. She's going to get tired of you. She'll take you for granted. She'll think that they can take better care of her than you can. That they're better lovers, better producers. Go and marry this woman. And her name is Gomer, by the way. Go and marry this woman named Gomer, knowing the pain that she is going to bring to you. So think about God's relationship with Israel. Did he not choose to set his love on Israel, knowing that they would wander away from him and break his heart in some way? He knew that, did he not? And so Hosea's marriage would serve as a pageant, a play of sorts of his own relationship with an adulterous people. And we don't know at what point Gomer begins to prostitute herself out. It's possible that even one or more of the children that she bears in his house are not even Hosea's. But clearly by the time we get to chapter 2, Gomer is no longer in Hosea's home And so maybe it was gradual, maybe it happened over time, or maybe at some point it was just a clean break and this woman left. But in chapter 2, she is gone, long gone. And the way it can be read is that the words represent both Gomer and Israel, what we see there. And so sometimes it's kind of hard to say, is that God just talking about Israel or is that him him talking about Hosea and his relationship to Gomer? I think the best way of seeing the words in chapter 2 is just to see both of them as for both. They represent God's relationship with Israel and Hosea's relationship with his wife, Gomer. And based on the way that we treat marriage in our society today, we might read this story. And think of it as a relationship that should be just easily discarded. Like, what's the big deal, Hosea? She chose to leave you, go out and find another wife. Because we like to say, kind of like the song, you know, you've lost that loving feeling. Now it's gone, gone, gone. Oh, it's gone. Forget it. 
Go find it somewhere else. No love and feeling, no marriage. No love and feeling, there's no really, there's no love, right? The feeling's gone, the love's gone. And so based on that kind of thinking, if we bring that into the story of Hosea, we, we might read chapter 2 expecting this man to cast off his wife who has given herself over to prostitution. Just be done with her, man. Good riddance. But remember, his marriage is a picture of God's marriage with his people. And so are our marriages, by the way. And our love is meant to model God's love for us. And aren't we thankful as we come into chapter 2 that God's love is not like that for us? Do you want to be so easily discarded by the Lord when we wander from Him? That's the point of this story. God's love is not like that toward us. And aren't we thankful? And so Hosea is told to continue to love his wife by pursuing her just as God pursues Israel. There is no good riddance, he says to Hosea. You go after her and you continue to love your wife even though she is an adulterous prostitute. So how is it that Hosea and God do that? How do, how do they continue to do that? Again, like our idea of love is the feeling's gone, the love's gone, but the Bible doesn't talk that way. Biblical love is also about what you choose to do. So I've told people before, like, you know, like they might say, like, well, I'm really struggling to love my wife. I don't feel like loving my wife anymore. The biblical answer is, well, you need to go and love your wife, which means pursue her good at great sacrifice to yourself. That's what love does. It overcomes a lot of those lack of feelings. If I were to give a, a genuine poll of the married people in this room, I think that you would probably say, in all honesty, there are times when you don't have that loving feeling for your spouse. It's just true. Your feelings ebb and flow based on all sorts of things going on inside of you and outside of you. And so my hope is, is that when you look at the love of Christ for you, you are willing to continue to love your spouse, which means overcome the feelings that you don't have and love her. You're committed to her. You're committed to him. Continue to love them. Seek their Good, And that's what Hosea is told to do here in chapter 2. And so he continues, God tells him, in love, continue to provide for her. That's the first way that he is to love her. Continue to provide for her. Look with me there in Hosea chapter 2, verse 5. It says, For their mother has played the whore. She who has conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me bread and my water, my wool, and my flax, my oil, and my drink. She thinks that all of those provisions are going to come from these other lovers who can do it better in some ways than Hosea. They'll give me what I need. They'll give me what I want. And here is something of the picture of what is actually happening that she does not know. 
And we don't know exactly how Hosea does it. We're not told here in detail, but remember, he is to picture the Lord and how he loves his people. So think with me. Gomer runs off to live with some other man. And this man's going to be the one who gives her everything that she wants now. But here is Hosea who goes out into the city and he purchases the finest things that he can buy. Wine and oil and grain and clothes. He buys all of these things and he stops by one day the house of her lover. Knocks on the door. Lover opens the door. And he's probably thinking, "Uh uh-oh, he's here for a fight. But instead, what does Hosea do? He opens up his hands provides all of these things to him, all the wine and oil and grain and clothes and all the things that Gomer needs, hands them to this man who is sleeping with his wife, turns around and goes home. So the man then takes them inside. And what does he do? He tells her, look what your husband gave. Nope, he doesn't. He says, look what I went out and got for you. And there's Gomer saying, oh, I knew that you were the right choice. I knew you were the man who was going to provide for me and give me everything that I need. I love you. That's the picture that is here. She does not know that it is her husband who continues to take care of her even while she is sinning against him in the most awful, hurtful way. He continues to love her by providing for her. Look at verse 8. It says, and she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. So she took the things that Hosea offered to her and went off and spent them on all of her lusts. And if you were to think of Israel right here, So he's saying that God has provided all of these good things for the people of Israel. And what did they do with them? They did not understand that God was continuing to care for them. And they took those things up on the high places and offered them in sacrifice to Baal. That's what's being said here. And Hosea is a picture of that. That the Lord continues to love his people even in their sin. As we think on that for ourselves, how should we see this? That our sin does not make God's love fail for us. Maybe you're here this morning and you just really need to hear that. I want God's word to shock your heart like those paddles that they put on people whose hearts need a jump. Because here you are, you are in sin And you know it. You know that you've wandered. You are an adulterer, if not physically, then spiritually. And you don't see any way out. And you think that God has abandoned you, that he could never love you. You need to take heart from what you see here, that even while Israel was in sin and failed to love the Lord, his love for them did not fail in return because his love is not like our love he does his does not give up on us even though we are prone to give up on 
Him. And so there is hope for you in the unfailing love of God, just like there was hope for Gomer as her husband continued to supply her needs for her, and she did not know that it was him who was doing it. And so maybe where you find yourself right now, you are in sin, and yet you are experiencing blessing at the same time. Could it be that the Lord is blessing you in some way in hopes that you will see that it is from him so that you will leave your sin? Leave your adulterous lover like Gomer should have known as he handed over all of these things and said, I'm doing all these wonderful things for you. Could it be that God is wooing you back to him? Leave your sin. Repent. That's the call on God's people this morning. But when this does not work, when the adulterous spouse of sorts does not repent, then what? What happens next? God tells us. Look at verses 9 through 13. God says, Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. And I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. In short, he says, I will take it all away. If she won't understand that it's her true lover blessing her in that time and season and repent of her sin, I'm going to take it all away. And so in love, God removes the blessing. That's what happens next. He removes his blessing. And that does not mean, that's why I said in love, it does not mean that God's love fails at this point. No, God's love is willing to pull out all stops for the good of the ones that he loves, meaning he will pull the rug out from underneath you if necessary. He will do that in love. And maybe some of you all here this morning have had experience with that. It's somebody that you love. Maybe a child is wayward. They're making bad choices. And for a time, what do you do? You continue to support them, trying to provide and give to them the things that they need in hopes, well, maybe they'll see how much they need me and they'll leave all this other junk and come back home. But after a period of time when they don't do that, what do you have to choose to do in love for those children? You pull the rug out. It's got to happen. It doesn't mean that you don't love them. But there is a time when your love for them compels you to cut them off. Not because you don't love them, but because you do in hopes that that then will cause them to return. And what an awful and hard thing for a parent to have to do. And in this situation here, that is what God is saying that he will do in the lives of his people. He will cut them off and they will experience an emptiness 
a season of winter time when there is no harvest, cold and numb and difficult, so that it, they will return to him. Maybe they'll remember the springtime that they once had with God, the summer of harvest, a time of warmth and delight, and they'll leave this thing then and come home to him. And so no, God's love has not failed. His love is in the middle of the pain, like medicine that makes you feel sick for a short time while it kills off the disease. Maybe this is where you currently are. You are in a wilderness and you are miserable. You feel all alone. You're empty. Now you're here for worship this morning, but you really have no heart for worship. No heart for prayer. You're experiencing a kind of soul rot. And the sin that once brought delight to your heart when you chased after it the first time or the second time or the hundredth time. Now it's causing you misery and pain. And now you think to yourself, God has completely left me. I'm getting what I deserve. And there's no way back. You need to understand God's purpose in your pain, in this judgment against you, has been done not out of vengeance. He does not delight in your suffering. God has done this out of love for you to drive you back into his arms. He's there in the emptiness Though it doesn't feel like it, he's there in the silence. You don't hear his voice speak. And you don't want to talk to him, it seems, either. In the numbing cold of your heart, his love has not failed. He is continuing to pursue you in this emptiness that you are experiencing. In verse 15... God speaks of a day when the valley of Achor will become a door of hope. Do you see that? Achor means trouble. And so God is saying here that when you are loved by him, the valley of trouble is not a place of despair and destruction. That is not what it is meant to be through his loving hands. It is not a dead end. It becomes a door of hope. And so are you in the valley of trouble like Gomer or like Israel? With the Lord, it is a door of hope for you. Again, the trouble is there to press you back into him. It's an opportunity to be reminded that his love for you has not completely left you. The blessings may have, they're gone. No blessing that my eyes can see. 
The joy is gone. But the emptiness that you find there in the valley is meant to be a doorway back to God, the God who has committed himself to you. And so he will not leave you in your sin. And this is the good thing right here. So often it seems that people just want to be left in their sin. Leave me alone. Just leave me alone. Let me do whatever I want to do. That's the way children talk to their parents so often. Just let me do my own thing. Let me go out and destroy myself and experience that destruction for myself. I'll do it my way. I heard somebody listening to that song by Frank Sinatra just a couple of days ago. I did it my way. That's what we want, is it not? My way, God. And eventually what God does, he says, okay, have it your way. But it's not out of vengeance. It is out of love. Return to me, he says. Remember the day when I took such good care of you. Remember that all the blessings in your life truly do come from me. Remind yourself of that and repent of your sin. So brothers and sisters, this morning as you sit there, do you really hear that? Do you hear that? And will you believe it? Not just for somebody else out there that you're thinking about, Maybe these words are for you. And so what extent, so like we've seen, God will continue to provide for his people in in love. He will then eventually remove his blessing from his people in their love. What extent is God willing to go to? What lengths, what end does that continue to lead to? Where will it stop? Will it stop? I'm going to read all of chapter 3, and it's only five verses, so don't be afraid. And it is going to tell us what extent God's love will go to for his people. And they are some of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible. Read with me. And the Lord said to me, go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. Though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lectic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Maybe you're a bit confused and you think to yourself, how are, some of, how are these some of the most beautiful words in all the Bible? I want you to picture the situation here. And so here's Hosea who has already pursued his wife to the door of another man who she's sleeping with and provided for her. But now things have deteriorated in Gomer's situation to the point where she was now on the auction block. 
She was spiritually enslaved, but now physically enslaved as well. She is not free. Again, she thought she was pursuing her freedom in her lust, but she is truly a slave. She was in the clutches of Baal and had no way out. And so here she is up for sale as a slave. And in ancient days, those who were being sold as slaves, they were stripped of their clothes in public, shamed. So everybody could see everything and then bid on you based on what they saw. And you were going to belong to the one who was willing to pay the highest price. And so here the Lord tells Hosea, that's where you're going to go in pursuit of your wife. You're going to go into that slave market, you're going to find her, and you're going to pay the necessary price to bring her home. Imagine that scene. And maybe even imagine the memories that Hosea is having on that morning when he wakes up. And think about how sad this is. That there was a day when Hosea and Gomer stood there being married in a day of celebration with all the world before them. Possibilities were out there in front of them. They were celebrating this new life they had together in marriage. And all these years later, where does he find himself? He wakes up that morning and he walks his way into the slummiest, grimiest place in town, having to buy back his own wife. That is shocking. She already belonged to him. She was his wife. But here she is a slave, and he has to now buy her as property in hopes that another man doesn't outbid him. Think about that. How awful this is. Purchase his naked, adulterous wife, who had already had her sin make her the property of another man. What are we supposed to see here? How can this be beautiful? In the grand scheme of God's plan, we are supposed to see that we are Gomer. And the Lord Jesus is Hosea. So where will his love go? What is the extent of it? In love, he buys her out of slavery. That's the extent of God's love, and that's the extent of Hosea's. God's love was willing to go to the slummiest, grimiest place in order to pay the price to redeem an adulterous woman for himself who would love him in return for the great love that he had shown to us. And that woman is us. And so the primary application from the book of Hosea that I want you to be struck with is this. Just the unfailing and shocking extent that God is willing to go for you to be His. 
His love is a marvel to behold. And Hosea has been written for us to do just that. Marvel at him. At how incredible God's love really is. Pictured forth in the story of this husband and his prostitute wife. While we were yet sinners, dare I say adulterous harlots, Christ died for us. And he promises to stay faithful to us forever. And a right response to that love is to leave the old life of harlotry behind and bask in the care of our God. And so whatever your unfaithfulness is, here is Jesus Christ confessing his love for you in his redeeming blood. He says, leave it behind. Look again at verse 3, at what Hosea says to his wife and what Jesus really is saying to us. You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. Jesus has committed himself in faithfulness forever to his people. And our response, it says, should be, yes, Lord Jesus. I'll never play the whore again. I will never run off somewhere after another lover. I delight in you because of the great love that you have shown to me. If we truly get that, it should melt our hearts in love for our God. It should. But again, as we sang earlier, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. I hope this morning that you'll see something of your own heart in this, but that you'll see the heart of God here as well. And so in closing, how does your heart respond to Jesus this morning? What's your heart's response? Does it rejoice in love for the one who pursued you into the slave market to buy you? And will you repent of the sin that kept your heart from living or loving him as it should? Are you willing to leave your sin? And do you know what your sin is this morning? Are you willing to leave it behind? Because sin really is, it's one of those things that's so attractive. There's a story, just a little side here, in C.S. Lewis's book, it's called The Great Divorce. He sees all these people who are torn between heaven and hell, and he sees a picture of this one particular man out there who has a growth on his shoulder, and is talking to him. And this angel walks up and says, if you will just let me cut that thing off, I'll take you back into this wonderful place with me. And the thing on the man's shoulder says, don't listen to him, he's lying. It'll kill you. It'll kill you if you kill me. And so there's this back and forth where the angel is just calmly saying, just let me take it off. It'll hurt, but it'll save you forever. And eventually the man allows him to cut it off and he wails and screams. But when he does, he is remade into this beautiful, it's like a unicorn figure that can now trot off into the gates of heaven. Our sin is like that. It screams at us and says, you can't live without me. You have to have me. Everything will change. Everybody will laugh at you. You'll be a mockery. You'll die without me. 
You need to understand that the Lord Jesus is so much greater than your sin this morning. Love for him will choose him and allow your sin to be lopped off and die. Will you repent of your sin this morning and trust in the Lord Jesus and follow him instead of the cries of your lusts? Just a practical application here. Will you repent of the lack of love that you've shown to your earthly spouse in recent days or maybe recent years? A spouse who is supposed to be a beautiful picture of the love that Christ has given to you. The love that he has shown us in faithfulness, constant faithfulness and provision and care, even when days are difficult, that person that you were married to is the one that you're supposed to model that love best toward. Will you repent? And some of you may be here this morning, just need to see this story here and stop running from the God who has so willingly run to the cross for you. So repent of your running and come to your Savior who has paid your ransom in full. Delight in his love, church. It is a wonderful love. The worship team would come forward at this time. This morning we're going to close with a song that we sang a little while ago. I think it's about as appropriate as any song for this particular message. And it's that Jesus paid it all. He did pay it all. And during this time, I'm just going to ask that you would respond in your heart in some way toward the Lord in repentance and faith and delight in his love.